Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Hong Kong protests that started in June continue to evolve. On Sunday, Hong Kong's news outlets captured terrifying video of police shooting protesters with non-lethal ammunition and tear gas at really close range in a train station. One woman who was hit in the eye became a rallying cry for the protesters who shut down Hong Kong's airport today. 180 flights were canceled as protesters packed the airport. The authorities in China say the protesters have begun to show sprouts of terrorism. We're going to talk about the protests in Hong Kong now with Wen Huang, who we've been chatting with uh, previously about the protests. And Wen is a uh, author of several books, including The Little Red Guard and A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. Thanks for joining us, Wen. Thank you, Jerome. And also joining us from Hong Kong is Danny Lee. He's a reporter with the South China Morning Post and focuses on aviation. And right now he is in the middle of the airport at 1 a.m. Thank you for joining us, Danny Lee. Jerome, good day to you. Uh, You know, I'm curious to hear what's going on there at the airport now at 1 a.m. because in theory, the flights are supposed to uh, happen in again you know, Tuesday morning at 6 a.m., did the, and the p- pictures of the protesters packing the airport are pretty amazing. Did, have the protesters dispersed at all? What, what does it look like? So within the last half an hour, the protests have pretty much ended. Even the press corps has left. So there are more travelers waiting for their flights in the next three, four, five hours than there are protesters. Protesters started to leave before the last train into the city. Um, So uh, as far as we're concerned, the the protests are all but done and Hong Kong airport can resume uh, normal service by tomorrow morning. Why did the protesters choose the airport now? What what happened there that made Monday a good day to go to the airport? As you outlined, the weekend of 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 clashes which were a a new low and a a new escalation and with the actions that was captured by the journalists and the the police tactics and police actions they felt they had to uh speak up once again and the airport is really a symbol for uh uh you know bringing attention to the rest of the world so having having uh gathered and seemingly caught the authorities off guard by the size of which they all amassed. I think they were successful in bringing attention to the rest of the world and for grounding the airport, which uh, for some protesters, uh, it was a good thing. And for travelers who seemingly accepted it, but seemingly had a bit more anger towards the airlines for not really giving them enough information, as is the case, uh, that their flights had ultimately been cancelled. I, I, can you talk a little about the um, – it seems like a double-edged sword for the protesters. If they want to uh, gain attention, this is a good way to do it. But if you would, if you disturb too much of the way of life, yeah, I mean I imagine that would be a bad thing and would, would reflect back on them. Are protesters thinking about uh, you know, keeping momentum and not alienating and inconveniencing people? Well, in the last couple of days, we've heard warnings from the Hong Kong government that the actions of these protesters are hurting the economy and to the extent which is dragging the economy down to the conditions of which affected the city during a, 
a terrible crisis in 2003 where the, there was a, a, a virus which uh, affected the city and the rest of Asia. But uh, And that really did hurt the city then. But for now, the government is playing the economic card to say, look, uh, the government wants to win back support from the public. It's warning that uh, the protest actions are losing support. At the same time, the protesters have learned their lessons from, say, five years ago when they occupied the um, main streets of Hong Kong, downtown Hong Kong, and they stayed there for 70, uh, 78, 79 days. Uh, and that really upset people because it was so concentrated in a certain area of Hong Kong, downtown Hong Kong. But now they are moving in this in this word of uh, be water they are they're flowing around the city to different places as we have seen over these previous weekends where it has been quite violent uh, they're moving to different districts of hong kong where they clash with police and the police try to keep up with them and and this is why tear gas is dispersed in uh, all kinds of places in residential areas and you know, bystanders tourists are getting caught up in all of this so uh, unfortunately we're talking they've been with, on the back foot up until more recently, and they've been taking a hard line. We're talking with Danny Lee. He's a reporter with the South China Morning Post, and we're discussing the protests in Hong Kong. The protesters closed the airport today. 180 flights were canceled. They're going to resume in uh, a few hours on Tuesday morning there. Um, you know, when I wanted to ask you about what you think about where this is going, I, the Chinese authorities that say that they're, this is the sprout of terrorism and have spoken out more uh, aggressively again. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be any give on the demands. Um, uh, do you have some idea about where this is at? I think like we discussed the, the issue last time is that the movement like previous one, like the Umbrellas movement, they're so decentralized. Right now, everybody's describing the, the protest movement as they call it water. They use a Chinese philosophy of water. It means like they flows into anywhere. It's no shape and takes on whatever shape it's in. If it flows in a container, it's a broad, a square. So it's decentralized and every day is turning into a guerrilla warfare or guerrilla movement that uh, different parts of the parts of the city, they just uh, sprout up and then without any uh, preparation. And the Hong Kong government believes that if they give in to one group of demands and then gradually they have to do more and then they could never stop that. And the only thing right now, there were two options. One is, of course, they're waiting to, for this movement to gradually to turn into violence. You know, they could play the the economic card and then the Chinese, the central government, the newspaper is already saying that the protest is trying to make Hong Kong a dead and dirty uh, port city. So I think like by grounding the flights right now is give them the further excuses and they want the business community to rise up and then to protest the movement or gradually this movement to die down on its own when ordinary citizens, when their lives were affected and then they will uh, gradually stop the protest. That seems to be the way they're going. But uh, there is also talk about the Chinese government sending troops over to crack down. But uh, right now, I think it's very probably it's unlikely, but we don't know with the escalation of the 
the movement because I think, uh, unlike Tiananmen Square, when I was there in 1989, all the students we gathered in Tiananmen Square, there was one place. And right now, it's really hard to target which one. Also, imagine the, uh, the, the troops storming to Hong Kong, the bad international image. China right now is battling many fronts with the United States on trade wars with uh, other Asian neighbors over the South China uh, Sea dispute and with Europe on some of the issues. I think this is going to be, if they do send troops to Hong Kong, but it is going to be so bad, it could... Uh, uh, could have further isolate itself and could trigger some uh, bad collapse or something. That's what the Chinese government sounds to be restrained right now. But I think the the with the the, the protests gathering the airport, Danny was correctly pointed out that uh, they had no uh, pre warning initially. The uh, the protests they gathered in the, at the airport. They wanted to educate mainland travelers from mainland China who are traveling to Hong Kong to educate them on what is going on because uh, in mainland China, they completely block the, the news coverage of any of the protesters. So they wanted the travelers to take the message, ba- message back to, to, to mainland China. And that's what the Chinese government is worried about. They worried so much that uh, the Hong Kong movement is going to spread over to mainland China. That's why I heard, I just read something that the Chinese government uh, stopped shipping all masks or umbrellas or uh, <laughs> uh, uh, different things to Hong Kong. And then they just try to block the, any connections between Hong Kong and mainland Chinese. All right. Um, it, I wanted to ask a question to you, Danny, about Cathay Pacific, the uh, airline that many people might know, and uh, they seem to be getting pressure from the Chinese government. At first, they, they correct me if I'm wrong, they were going to allow employees to participate in protests and things of that nature, but now they are um, firing people who were, who, were, who were involved with the protests. Um, can you tell us about what's been happening with Cathay Pacific? So Cathay Pacific is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Unfortunately, they uh, they declined when asked uh, on last Wednesday to to comment on the the role that its employees have 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 been caught up in these protests, which includes one of their pilots being uh, captured by police during one of the the clashes in the streets, being charged with rioting. Uh, and faces 10 years in jail or thereabouts. You also have staff actively uh, creating protests, one early one at the airport. You have uh, uh, other people who are protesting or or actively supporting these protests, and that uh, falls badly with the likes of the Chinese government uh, who have applied economic pressure on, on these private businesses in order to corral them to at least stop the staff supporting these protests and to at least try and support the Hong Kong government, which it appears looks sometimes a little weak because there's very few uh, people or organizations who are willing to speak up for them. So at the moment uh, on on Saturday, we had uh, the airline who was forced to declare that they had dismissed two uh, airport employees for leaking data in relation to um, the passenger travel of, of Hong Kong police. Uh, who are traveling uh, for a soccer tournament. And uh, that was in breach of the company's policies. And they announced that they also said they suspended the pilot and stopped him from flying. 
which would have happened because he's clearly not fit to fly uh, in relation to his uh, potential jail sentence. Today, we had Cathay also say that any uh, any staff uh, supporting the protests, uh, which most of them have been classed as illegal by uh, the Hong Kong government and the Hong Kong police, but they haven't been they have not been given permits. Uh, the company has decided to uh, warn uh, their staff: if you do go on these protests, you will face serious disciplinary action. The company has a zero tolerance policy now, and they are willing to fire people. And this is really in response to uh, uh, the Chinese government, the Chinese uh, aviation safety authorities uh, cracking down on Cathay or using Cathay or using a safety example uh, to to uh, on Friday warn them that your staff who support these protests cannot enter mainland China. Uh, they cannot fly over its airspace. And if they do, they uh, well. Uh, Cathay Pacific faces being barred from mainland Chinese airspace, which is unthinkable given a fifth of its all of its flights uh, go into the mainland Chinese market and a further 20% or so go towards Europe and North America, which would effectively cripple the company. So they had to act. And unfortunately, this rock in a hard place, this is what I mean. They had no choice and all the hands it has been dealt with are pretty bad. Does Do all the businesses in Hong Kong, and there's so many global businesses there, do they face the same kind of pressures as Cathay, really? That, that really, they, if the Chinese government says you are not going to get access to the, the business that you are doing, it, it's um, even global businesses, U.S. businesses, British businesses, uh, European businesses, they're all going to kind of have to go along with, with what the Chinese government thinks about this? Let's bring it to a wider context here. You look at some of the European companies and, and the way they have approached the China market. I think we saw uh, one of the fashion companies, uh, I can't remember the name, but very, very recently, they, on the back of one of their uh, their shirts, they identified China, uh, Hong Kong and Macau as independent countries, which upset China because they are uh, effectively are part of China and right. because they were identified as being, uh, being uh, independent. Uh, it caused uh, it caused uh, a huge storm in in the country, and uh, you had some big mainland celebrities uh, saying they would no longer do business with this fashion chain. And when you look at Hong Kong uh, in this context, you do see signs that the mainland Chinese media are putting some pressure on other companies for their actions. For example, not allowing the Hong Kong police to enter their shopping malls to use their toilets for example during these police operations so they're being called out on it and it is it, the first sign that the likes of Cathay Pacific uh, the best example has been caught out in this in this in this push and pull of supporting the government or or being ambivalent to the protests which is not enough you have to be uh, calling your employees out on it and unfortunately for Cathay they've been caught out by it um, when we've just got about a minute left here, but do you want to weigh in on the pressures that uh, the business community is facing in Hong Kong? Yes, I think they put they put so much pressure on the business right now. They're putting the dilemma. Yeah, Danny's talk about the European Versace had a T-shirt thing, and then some Taiwanese uh, stores. They said they want to close one store, and the Chinese government trying to find scapegoat. And they try to punish them. So I think it is very hard. On the one hand, they are losing business. But on the other hand, this is the first time I've seen 
that business is really supporting the movement. Previously, we always thought they are so practical. They didn't want to disrupt the business. And uh, uh, But this time, they're kind of very complicated on the situation and what they really, a lot of the employees, they are participants. But on the other hand, they don't want to offend the Chinese government. So right now, they are just playing this game. Like, on the one hand, they have to bow to the Chinese government pressure. And that's what the Chinese government is trying to target, seem to be, in the next couple of weeks. Wen Huang is a writer and he's the author of The Little Red Garden, A Death in the Lucky Holiday Hotel. And thanks very much to Danny Lee, reporter with the South China Morning Post, who is with us at one in the morning in the airport in Hong Kong. Thank you both for joining us and uh, talking about the protests at the Hong Kong airport today. Turkey has welcomed around three and a half million Syrian refugees, but deportations are beginning, and we'll talk about Turkey's changing position on refugees after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Turkey has welcomed around three and a half million Syrian refugees. But Turkey's patience is wearing thin and reports of calculated deportations are beginning. The Wall Street Journal said last week that the Turkish government is even working on a plan to relocate 700,000 Syrians to territories it it, uh, hopes to seize from a U.S.-backed Kurdish group in northern Syria. Let's talk with the authors of a foreign policy article called Turkey's Deportations Are Killing Syrian Refugees. With me now is Karim Chiyab, and is a Lebanese journalist and researcher based in Beirut. Thanks for joining us, Karim. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Saraya Hunaydi, and she's a Syrian writer, a member of the Syrian women's political movement, and was a refugee herself. Thanks very much for joining us, Saraya. Sarah. Sarah. Thank you. Um, now, Sarah, tell us about yourself and your story. Is um, I think a lot of people are under the impression that being a refugee in Turkey is pretty decent. Um, what, what is it really like? Uh, well, yeah, I was a refugee in Turkey for around two years and a half. Um, and it was between the years 2014 and 2015. Um, I'm not going to say it was easy. It is, however... Like compared to Lebanon and Jordan, many people say it is better. I was myself in Lebanon before. Um, it's it's better in a way that is just it's just a bigger country, but um, it's the same. Um, let's say treatment. It's the same. 
a lack of access to basic human needs like education and and um, getting a work permit it's all these things are all hard things to achieve for for Syrian refugees um, and uh, they they like you have to go through a lot of hurdles to do that and I myself was in in, in Turkey between 2014 2015 and it was really hard to um, to get the Kimlik and to get uh, a work permit so I had to work unfortunately without you know registering and um right. to, to, to survive because if i didn't do so i would be on the street explain what a kimlik is because it's important to the stories that we're hearing now about deportations and whether you are in a place legally or not in in istanbul or in turkey yes so the kimlik um uh, it's it's a paper that um guarantees uh, Syrian refugees to uh, have a temporary protection in Turkey. Um, and um, after six months, you can um, you can have a work permit. But the problem is with the Kimlik is that, first of all, it's really hard to obtain one. And a lot of the um, government stations that give out the Kimliks are uh, are very much crowded and they decide to like close their doors in the middle of the day they are they have been called the word moody which is really like describes any like describes them any more than than any other like academic word or uh you know another word so <laughs> it's really hard to get the kimlik and sometimes um you can't get it unless you bribe someone and it can be like 200 to 300 dollars and we all know that many syrians don't have that amount of money to just pay it as a bribe um so yeah it's um it's a temporary protection card it lets you it's very ironic now because it's it's a temporary protection card that is uh used now to deport syrians so um, now, yeah. and now, tell us about you, the person in the article um, who is being deported from Syria and, and doesn't, you know, have uh, the proper documentation. Yes. So both of the people we mentioned in the article, one unfortunately is not with us right now, uh, is not with us anymore. He um, he was killed on the Syrian-Turkish borders while he was trying to get back to his family, and we're talking about Hisham. Both of them, Hani and Hisham, were deported recently in the last couple of months, and um, both of them hold the Kimliks. So both of them legally have legal protection to stay in Turkey. Um, both of them were deported to Syria, and uh, both of them were, of course, in danger, and one of them just left us three days ago. Um, so Hani, uh, was deported from Turkey, from Izmir and, and Hisham, uh, was deported from Istanbul. They both have Kimlik, but they both have Kimlik from other states. And this is a very important note to make because right now they are justifying the deportation by saying that if the Kimlik, if you're working in another state in Turkey and your Kimlik is from that other state, um, you are, it's, it's against the law, which doesn't really say that. Um, and a lot of Syrians end up working in, in factories and most of the factories are in Istanbul. So 
um, and they are given the type of jobs that really no one um, takes. And I'm talking here about majority. Of course, there are a lot of other Syrians who work in education and um, and a lot of other um, vocations. But here we're talking about the majority of Syrians who lost their homes and who have families to support and are willing to do any type of job. And these two men who we mentioned in the article, both had Kim Lakes, yet both were deported. I'm talking with Sarah Hunaidi, and she is a writer who is co-author of an article in Foreign Policy called uh, Turkey's Deportation Policy is Killing Syrian Refugees. Also with us is Karim Cheyab, and he is a Lebanese journalist and researcher. He's in Beirut right now. And I wanted to ask you about the calculation that Turkey might be making with the people it deports. Can you describe uh, why they are, you know, looking for young men largely to deport is this a, what what's the idea there well turkey um established basically an enclave after invading afrin and afrin's an area in, in northern syria which was controlled by the uh, turkish led uh pyd uh after turkey um completed this operation it 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 also utilized um Syrian uh, Syrian opposition forces, which it backed, and it appears that while Turkey is expanding its military footprint in the region, it also wants to uh, expand uh, expand its um, its military capabilities, which includes lots of young men. Uh, from what we heard while working on this story, that uh, fighting for a Turkish-backed militant group uh, would actually be one of the few uh, economic livelihoods that are sustainable in the area. At the same time, um, these deportations under the guise of uh, deporting refugees or, 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 or foreign nationals that are, that are undocumented or that have committed crimes also sort of uh, resonates with some of the patterns you've been seeing in other countries that have been hosting Syrian refugees, notably Lebanon and Jordan. Uh, you know, they have both been pushing towards refugee returns. Uh, they have both been uh, making it extremely difficult for refugees to renew their documents, to gain documents uh, in, in general, and, and their basic freedom of movement. So this comes at a time as well where refugees are no longer the center of attention. Um, uh, Syrian refugees in particular are no longer the center of attention to national community as well as international donor fatigue. So we're seeing this new chapter where there is more uh, cause for refugees to be sent back to Syria with little to no regard for international human, uh, human rights uh, and, uh, of course, the safety in Syria. So Turkey probably has a very good opportunity to, to benefit itself um, in, in, in this particular situation. Now, I, it sounds like they're, when you say benefit themselves, it's, it's an awful kind of thing to think that they're sending refugees back to fight in the opposition. They want them to join up with their militias, essentially, because they'll have no other choice. Uh, they're in Afin. But there also um, this report in the Wall Street Journal that said they, they're thinking about relocating 700,000 Syrians to the area that the Kurdish group in nor uh, northern Syria controls, the U.S.-backed group that uh, Turkey thinks is a terrorist. Um, that would be really a calculated way to return refugees. I mean, that's unbelievable. Absolutely. And of course, say that they benefit from this is, of course, extremely cynical. But I suppose that's that's what the situation is like. It's pretty grim. 
And of course, uh, the reason that the benefit is twofold is that one, of course, there's increasingly anti-refugee sentiment in Turkey. Um, and this was especially uh, shown by the new mayor of Istanbul. Um, however, yes, you're right. I mean, one of Turkey's biggest concerns in Syria is the is the growth of the U.S.-backed Kurdish forces, the PYD, uh, which have developed these semi-autonomous cantons in, uh, across northern Syria. And uh, this organization, this, this Kurdish group, which is affiliated to the PKK, a Kurdish uh, gr- group that Turkey uh, considers a, a terrorist organization. Um, so Turkey definitely has, uh, you know, security concerns in Syria on that note. And this is probably one of this is one of the many reasons why Afrin is such a strategic target because it's so close to the Syrian border. So um, it's definitely clear that Turkey has interest in making sure that um, you know that the semi-autonomous uh, Kurdish uh, areas uh, or that function as semi-autonomous uh, do not uh, do, you know they're not cons- they don't consolidate power. Um, this is interestingly enough, despite you know Turkey being opposed to the Assad government in Syria. Um, they both sort of have this mutual interest in making sure that the Kurds don't uh, secede any land or function uh, semi-autonomously from the state. But it is strategic for sure. Uh, and this is one of the biggest concerns for Turkey is to make sure that it exerts its influence uh, to make sure that uh, these Kurdish groups don't uh, have any power legitimacy in, in, in these uh, parts of Syria. And Kareem, I want to go back to the the thing you mentioned at the beginning of your answer, where the new uh, mayor of Istanbul is again is you know supportive of of uh, getting refugees out of Istanbul. And Mr. Imam Magolu, uh, he had a campaign that he just ran on peace and love. It was the peace and love campaign. He didn't mention negative things about the opposition. Um, how does that? How does that jive with his campaigning? If he's a peace and love guy, I mean, this is not too far fetched, considering that a lot of the anti-refugee campaigns here in Lebanon, for example, is is sort of sugarcoated under things like preserving Lebanon's minorities, preserving Lebanon's demographic diversity for the sake of Lebanon's economy. The idea is that. Um, I think this is a unique way to sort of counter xenophobic campaigns. If you look at, you know, Trump calling uh, immigrants from Mexico, from Mexico rapists and criminals, uh, this is, there, this, there's a sort of alternative way to kind of counter the anti-refugee sentiment through this, through this campaign. And of course, uh, you know, we have also heard extremely, uh, you know, anti, anti-refugee sentiments. You know, they've been, called, uh, they've been called a traumatic experience at one point, among other things. Um, but the idea is that um, campaigns that are built on nationalism and on national national uh, national cohesion and security, while you know without directly targeting refugees, is is pretty tactical because it seems that in many of the host countries that once were sympathetic towards refugees and rejected you know perhaps racist or sectarian notions about them. It seems that there is this narrative about refugees being this economic time bomb, and I think this is how we're seeing. The growing anti-refugee sentiment because now it's not just about race or ethnicity anymore it's about the jobs even though there isn't really much you know logical economic solid economics behind these the, the this rationale but it exists more than ever and it's you know and it's in lebanon and it's in turkey and it's in jordan as well um sarah i wanted to get back to you and talk about um what the global community should how the global community should respond to this um the uh, the refugee plight of the Syrians is the the greatest since World War II. And um, how do you how do you think 
people in the international community should um, weigh in on this? Well, to be honest, what we're seeing from the international community right now is a total um, like indifference, unfortunately. And um, but at the same time, I mean, we are here on radio talking about it, but it's not it's not just it's not enough. People in Syria um, who are inside of Syria and, and refugees are constantly talking to me and telling me how much they are disappointed and scared for their lives. And they're disappointed from the international community, how it left us. And not not just now. It's been happening since the beginning of the revolution. And unfortunately, on the other hand, Assad is getting all the help from Russia and and from from Iran. So it's it's a very unbalanced fight that we're we're having right now. And to be honest, I'm I'm very pessimistic because after eight years, after all these lives that we've lost, something should have happened early 2013. All the red lines that were that were talked about have been crossed multiple times. So. What should happen right now is is people should move on from this indifference towards Syrian refugees. They should listen to their stories. They should listen to them. And I'm not saying that Syrians, all of them, like agree on a certain way. You know, I'm not going to say I'm the voice of Syrians and, and this is what we want. Well, what we all agree on, at least, is for the killing to stop and for someone to stop Assad and anyone who is like him killing Syrian refugees and deporting them or putting them, you know, um, in danger, that should at least be stopped. There should be justice and accountability for those people who committed war crimes and are getting away with it. So we're not asking for much. We're not telling, um, we're not asking for, for much relief about, you know, a detailed uh, action. But at the same time, there should be something done because people keep losing their lives. Innocent people keep losing their lives, and I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the world is listening to us anymore. And 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 after eight years, we just became old news. And and there should be something to be done. I'm not saying a world war three because that's what everyone keeps talking about. If 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 America gets involved, there will be. Right. Um, Right. Conflict between Russia and America, and no one wants that. Right. Uh, Sarah Hunaidi is a Syrian writer. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for your article, Turkey's Deportation Policy is Killing Syrian Refugees. And Karim Chayayab is a Lebanese journalist and researcher based in Beirut who co-wrote the article. Thanks for joining us and talking about the situation with Syrian refugees. Everybody likes ramen, but nobody makes it at home. After the break, Monica Ng talks with the creator of the new book, Let's Make Ramen, about making ramen at home. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In the past couple of decades, the United States has gone crazy for ramen. Not only the cheap package stuff, but also gourmet ramen shops that have popped up all over the country. What most people aren't doing is making their own broths, noodles, and condiments at home. 
Author Hugh Amano and illustrator Sarah Bican want to change that. The Chicago duo has produced a new book, Let's Make Ramen. It looks and reads like a comic book, but promises to make homemade ramen accessible. Worldview contributor Monica Ang recently talked to the pair at the Let's Make Ramen release party. Thanks, Jerome. A lot of people might know illustrator Sarah Beacon and chef author Hugh Amano from their previous book, The Adventures of Fat Rice. But this time they're back with ramen. I recently talked to them with my Chewing Podcast co-host Louisa Chu at the headquarters for Cards Against Humanity. It was one of those sweltering Chicago days, but that didn't stop us from sampling some ramen and these pickled shiitake mushrooms that are so delicious. I'd get the book just for that recipe. Anyway, because of all that heat, you're going to hear some strong air conditioning in the background. But I think it just helps set the mood. So, here you go. Let's make ramen. Hi, everybody. Hi, thanks for having us. <laughs> so, this is such a gorgeous book. It's something that I would read even if I didn't want to make ramen, and I do. How did you guys decide to make this a graphic novel type cookbook well so the idea actually uh came from the publisher uh it's this it's 10 speed press they're the same publisher that did fat rice and after the fat rice book and they also put out uh robin ha's amazing comic book cookbook uh cook korean they approached amy collins who was the agent for the fat rice book and asked if i would be interested in doing a fully illustrated comic book cookbook for ramen and i said absolutely ramen is amazing i love it and i would love to draw it and I think at that point I'd been doing a lot of illustrations for You Show for their ramen program for the ramen battles that they had. And we talked to a couple of different chefs actually before we landed on Hugh, but it made so much sense to work with Hugh because we'd done the fat rice book together. And also because like we really wanted to make this a book that was super approachable and accessible for like the home cook to be able to make ramen and not be tempted to tie it into a brand of a restaurant and have it be just like a marketing piece for a restaurant. So Hugh, you're the uh, ramen brain behind this? I am. I mean, that's kind of flattering and big way to put it, (laughs) but I'm the one that came up with all the recipes and and did all the writing in there. Um, Sarah and I met when I was at Fat Rice working and she came in, sat down at the bar, ate the pocock guy, the Portuguese chicken, later emailed us a drawing of it. It was just absolutely beautiful. And at that moment, we were like, we have to get this woman on our crew because we're looking for people to do graphics and to make signs for us and all that kind of stuff. Then when Abe and Adrian and I started writing The Adventures of Fat Rice, kind of the same thing. It just fell in line. Like, it's such a graphic uh, concept, and it's all kind of based on The Adventures of Tantan. And it's all about hitting you with just that graphic pop every time I see someone that knows the adventures of fat rice they're like oh yeah you wrote that book it's beautiful or like let's make ramen this book looks so great you know and I'm always kind of like uh good I'm glad it looks great that's because of Sarah did you read it at all but anyway so that's that's where it came from and that's where the relationship started Mm -hmm. so who is this for Oh, I I think this is for anyone who loves ramen and wants to learn how to make it for themselves. Anyone who's maybe intimidated by the process of making ramen, uh, because it can be pretty intimidating. But the way we lay it out in the book, this is totally something that a normal human can do in a regular human kitchen. And we should kind of explain, too, is that, of course, most people's experience with ramen is the instant bag kind, which we all love, and we all love doctoring the instant ramen. But this explores the um, kind of, not even necessarily, 
really harder or fancier or more gourmet, but it does go there too, you know. So, I mean, the cover itself, you know, it kind of shows like some of the basic elements of the fresh noodles and the uh, roast pork and the soft runny egg. And um, and actually, what's those little strips down there? That's menma. The bamboo? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Scallions and the shiitake mushrooms. Exactly. So it talks a little bit more about the world of ramen that's becoming more accessible in a lot of the bigger cities around the U.S. So what were your favorite things that you learned how to make in the process of researching this book? For me, it was really like the, the noodles was really a cool thing. I mean, I love making pasta, made pasta for a very long time. But it's such a different thing. It's a very similar process. But I was in Japan, in Kofu, at the, which is the base of Mount Fuji. I got to go into a restaurant that a guy runs. He has this really cool little sliding closet door that opens into his soba-making sort of headquarters. You know, he's one of these guys, he goes up to the mountain to get the water, and he gets this, you know, such-and-such flour for the noodles. And the way that he did it, all by hand, was just such a really um, sort of touching and moving thing. You know, that's all fine and well, but the point of the story is when he mixed it by hand, it really sparked something in me that understood the hydration and the importance of the hydration of the flour for the noodles to succeed ultimately um, and that was a really great experience and really enriching for me I think that like maybe just the eggs like because I love I love the eggs so much on a bowl of ramen it's always my favorite part and learning like we, we have the ajitsukaitsumago recipe and also the onsen egg recipe and learning how to like really perfect those was a big thing for me even though it feels like such a small thing but like that's what really makes a bowl of ramen perfect for me so i always like to say can you describe those eggs in loving detail for people who haven't had a chance to have like the you know because they're a really specific kind of soft runny yolk I think, in yeah. one word it's unctuous and yeah. the yes. idea is that it's I mean, we have the ajitsuke eggs and the onsen eggs in there. And the onsen are a little looser, but they're just gooey as all get out. And the idea is that the egg, like runny yolk isn't really the way to describe it. It's more like a custardy yolk that runs. Like one of those lava chocolate cakes. (laughs) Exactly. But one ingredient. (laughs) Can I ask, for these noodles, do you need an extruder or can you do this without special equipment? This is all possible by hand, but that's kind of insane to try to take that on, especially if it's your first time doing it. You could also use a standing mixer, but what's important for the rolling process is like a pasta attachment for that. That's kind of key, because otherwise, I mean, you're in for massive arm workouts. Can't just use your old Play-Doh thing that made the hair. <laughs> Sit right down, crank up the chair as Daddy grows his Play-Doh hair. Maybe you could. I don't know. That's a great idea. So much to try. <laughs> but even those, like, little rollers, those are, you know, kind of manual, you know? I mean, I mean not yes. kind of, but they are manual, and they're not actually that expensive. So, I mean, I'm sure you can find those at, actually, Salvation Armies, because, like, people buy it, and they're like, I don't think so again. But now you have me thinking about the Play-Doh thing. You can make it with Play-Doh. We're on to a new thing. Wouldn't that be fun if people, like, at their seats could do the Play-Doh crank thing? Or just give it to the kids to make the noodles for them. 
brother needs a little off the top in the fuzzy pumper barber shop. So would you recommend for somebody who is getting the book because they think it's beautiful, want to read a little bit about the history and the range of ramen, uh, what's a good recipe to start with? What I am saying to people is that it's not really that kind of recipe. For instance, in The Adventures of Fat Rice, I always point people to the capella, which is the meatloaf, because it's approachable, it's simple to do. In here, the thing is that our book breaks ramen down into a lot of different components. So it's not like there's one recipe to send you to to make. It'd be good to make the chicken stock so you understand that. Um, it would be good to learn how to make these eggs because, again, the eggs, you don't have to have ramen to have the eggs. You eat those eggs all day and night. Leave them in that pickling in the brine and they kind of pickle and they get really good and really strong and really salty and really just wonderful. There are recipes in the back that are more single shooter recipes. Uh, Mike, who did our ramen tonight, is kind of flattering. Like when someone out in the world makes a recipe and they're like, oh, this was good, like a recipe that you wrote, it's really flattering. He made one in there. It's called the Hot and Cold Summer Mazamin. And that's kind of a simple single shooter. You don't really need to make anything to make that. You can buy the noodles. And the rest is just a, a sauce. And you're pouring hot noodles into a cold sauce of like vinegar, lime juice, a little bit of brown sugar, a fair amount of fish sauce, scallions, and shallot. And just tossing out tomatoes and basil. And it's awesome. And it's hot. It's like 1,000 degrees in Chicago right now. (laughs) Go out and buy the book and make it today. And we should explain, actually, Mike is Mike Satinover. Is that how you pronounce Mike's last name? Mm -hmm. A.K.A. Ramen Lord on Reddit. And um, I was asking a little bit about your book events, if you're going to be doing, like, a tour of different ramen nights around. And um, not so much, right? So it was kind of a real treat to have him in here um, because he's such high demand. He's just going to make the list. Listeners jealous. But, yeah, I know. Seriously, we were jealous of ourselves. I'm telling you, seriously. But um, but yeah, no, it was um, and beautiful and unexpected. You know, I mean, his style of ramen. Mike is this guy who has never worked in a restaurant. He works like a quote unquote normal job. Who lived in Japan for a year and just fell in love with ramen. And he's like a walking encyclopedia of ramen knowledge. And he's also he has this thing in him which you don't see a lot in people who are not from the restaurant industry uh, he has that chip where he just keeps working on a thing until it's perfect this is like that shokunin thing that we talk about and let's make ramen where you're just perfecting your craft and he works it over and over and over the bowl that he made tonight he's calling it tokyo new wave shoyu ramen it's a really simple um, that a lot of guys are doing in tokyo right now and it's just a very basic chicken stock very basic shoyu tare, the seasoning. That agent. means soy sauce, and it's a really good soy sauce. Yeah, and it's really, he uses really fancy, nice soy sauce. <laughs> and then some schmaltz. And there's schmaltz on top. Um, <laughs> so good. Which is, Sarah kept saying, what is this delicious oil that's on top? <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's chicken, chicken fat. fat. <laughs> which is, but it's great, you know? And, and then Sun Noodles made us, custom made us noodles for tonight's event. And that's pretty special. Yeah. And they're the famous ramen noodle makers. Yeah, they're great. So Mike, though, will be doing, he does pop-ups under Akahoshi is the name of his pop-up. And he's around town. He does a lot of stuff over at Poly G's in uh, Logan Square. So he's available. Sarah and I, we're trying to work all this out, like, 
how do we approach these things, you know, because I'll do like cooking demos and whatnot. She obviously knows a lot of people in the illustration and, and comics world, so we'll figure all this out yeah. in, in due time. But like I said, Lisa, <laughs> I'm trying, like our goal is from the start has been to make it normal, to make it not like here is X ramen star doing high-flying ramen like Ivan Orkin's book he's awesome and he's in our book and I crazy respect for him but by his own admission his book it's not really for the home cook it's more like this is what we do in my shop and ours is just about being able to do it at home I think the illustrations really bring home that accessibility. It's not just like, oh, only you know, Iron Chef can do it. I mean, I haven't tried it yet, but it looks like I could maybe do it. But speaking of, uh, so for the wrap-up question, what is the hardest part about drawing ramen? <laughs> Technically, the hardest part about drawing ramen for this book was the noodles, just because the style that I decided to draw this book in pretty much required that I illustrated every single noodle individually. So in the noodles chapter, I had to draw many, many, many noodles. Um, I mean, I don't want to say it got a little tedious, but I was I was excited for that chapter to end and get back to a little more variety and draw some other stuff. I think that's the only thing that I had any issues with was just I got a little bored drawing every single curve of every single noodle after a while. You can't, like, cut and paste on a computer? <laughs> no. No, actually, I... And maybe I was crazy for this, but I hand-illustrated the entire book. Yes. Every page is pen and ink and watercolor paint. Holy smokes. <laughs> and it's, it's art. I mean, tonight, actually, with my own money, I bought your art because I love <laughs> the way you draw food. In the below, D-L-E-S, got my noodles, yes. In the below, D-L-E-S, got my noodles, yes. Well, Sarah Beacon and Hugh Amano of Let's Make Ramen, the most beautiful cookbook I have seen in ages. Thank you so much for talking to us tonight. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Nice going, Monica Eng, with the uh, noodles and ramen and making it at home. Sounds like fun, and Let's Make Ramen is the name of the book once again. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the Endangered Species Act. It's the cornerstone of U.S. environmental regulations, and the Trump administration is weakening the rules of the Endangered Species Act. We'll talk about that tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Ashish Valentine for production assistance, and thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering today. Day. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.